you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis. This time we're looking at chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. We've been walking through the life of Abram in our sermon series during this summer. I want to give you a quick reminder of kind of what we've seen so far. Abram is presented in the scriptures as the man of faith, the model in Hebrews particularly of a man that is called to faith in God with all of his weaknesses and all of his struggles, as well as his victories. And as we walk through this story, we don't just see a hero to emulate. Rather, we see how God is forming and shaping and working in the life of a very ordinary person like Abram, to make him into a man of faith. And so the hero of this story ultimately, truly, is God, even as the story is that of Abram. And so as we've talked about this story of Abram, we saw how God began with giving his promises to Abram. Abram responds by hearing and obeying and worshiping the Lord. We see how Abram then fell into fear and sin in the land of Egypt And yet God worked in the midst of that mess and rescues Abram. Abram emerges from Egypt, a rich man. He makes the amazing step of faith in allowing Lot to take the most fertile of the land near the wicked city of Sodom. Yet God rewarded Abram's faith, showing us that God delights in the obedience of his people. So this week, we see a new challenge in Abram's life, a new way that God is calling Abram to grow in his faith. And this new trial is much like those that many of us face, and so his experience will be important for us to study. And this trial, it's more than just a struggle, it's a story of war, the the literal war at that. It's the very first war that we see recorded in the scriptures. And so as we look at this war story, we're going to split it up into three acts, and we're going to read the story as we go. So here's a bit of a preview. Uh, Some chapter headings might be another way of thinking of it. These three acts will go like this. Act one is going to be the story of unbeatable foes. Act one, we're introduced to unbeatable foes. Act two, we see a response of courageous loyalty. And then in act three, we will see the ultimate divine victory. So act one, introduced unbeatable foes. Act two, a response of courageous loyalty. And act three, the final divine victory. Would you join with me as we pray before we go into God's word? Lord, the path of faith that you have called us to follow is often hard. It's filled with challenges that can feel insurmountable. Lord, we ask that you would lift our eyes, open our hearts and our minds, that we might behold your glory, be changed by the beauty of your truth, that we might have courageous faith to live for your glory in all things. In the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. So as we come to this passage in Genesis 14, I I should probably warn you up front, there's a lot of names here. It reminds me somewhat of of someone telling you of a story of their high school that's not your high school. Telling you a story that goes something like this, you know, 
Johnny told Bobby that he saw Tyler kissing Mary, but Mary is supposed to be Bobby's boyfriend, and Tyler knows that Johnny was watching because Johnny said, had said that he wouldn't let Sue copy his math homework. But what Johnny didn't know was that Sue and Mary are friends with Beth, who's Tyler's sister and is in 12th grade, and she tried to help Sue, but Bobby's dad is the math teacher. Now, if you followed any of that, you should really write for a soap opera. Um, so, and I say all that because with all these names, I know it's very easy to kind of tune out. I don't want you to do that. And so rather than read through this passage straight like we do most weeks, I'm going to break it up and comment and, as we go along to help us stay oriented. And, and, and the story is, gets much more clear that way. So starting verse 14, verse 1, chapter 14, verse 1, excuse me. Moses writes this, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Shedlamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. Okay, stop. Right there, verse one. You have a group of four kings. The main name you want to remember as we continue on through the story is the name of Shedlamer. That name is going to come up again. So these four kings represent one alliance. What I'm going to refer to them throughout the rest of this, this story is I'm going to refer to this alliance as the warlords. So you have these first four kings. They're, the, they're an alliance. We're going to call them the warlords. Verse 2. These kings, the warlords, made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shember, king of Zoibim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. So now we have a second group of kings, this time five kings, and they are going to be fighting against the warlords. You'll notice in that list two cities you've probably heard of before, Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 3. All these joined in forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. So this is where the battle will take place. But first, the author is going to give us a bit more context of this battle. That's where we are with verse 4. We're getting some more context. We're backing up a little bit. Twelve years they, the Alliance of Five, had served Shedlamer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So that group of five that I mentioned before that included Sodom and Gomorrah, they are rejecting the rule of the warlords. And so we're going to call that group of five the rebels. So we got the warlords, rebels, Four, five, warlords, rebels. Verse five. In the 14th year of Shedlamer and the kings who were with him, so the warlords, they came and defeated the Rephim in Ashtoth Kernam, the Zuzim in Ham, and Emim in Shevach Kirigathim. <laughs> I'm not even going to try that one. Uh, <laughs> And the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. And they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Malachites, and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazron Tamar. So, what is all that telling us? That's telling us that the warlords have been out fighting and conquering in all of these different places. And they're just bowling over and eliminating every kingdom that they encounter. 
Seven or eight different battles are here in this list, all in quick succession, and all of them are great victories for the warlords. In other words, they seem unstoppable. Verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, so our rebels come back, they went out and they joined in battle in the valley of Siddim with Shedlamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Ephrael, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. So we had four kings against five. So in this section, we're back in the valley of Siddim where we were in verse 3. The rebels are mounting their offensive against the warlords. The rebels seem to be thinking, this is going to be our chance. There's five of us. There's four of them. And the warlords, they must be tired from all of these battles. This is our opportunity. We're going to choose the battlefield and we are going to break free. We are going to defeat the warlords. Verse 10. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen, or tar, pits. As the, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into the pits and the rest fell into, fled into the hill country. So just like that, the battle is over. Even without really mentioning what, what happened, we find out that the rebels had been crushed, literally. As they were trying to flee, they were falling into holes in the ground. So then verse 11, So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of their provisions and went their way. In other words, the warlords are now remain unbeatable. And they take all the goods and food of their defeated foes and they leave. That's how we begin this passage and this story with forces that seem completely unbeatable. Every army that rises up against these warlords is crushed and subjected. And they don't do this just once. They do it again and again. Even when five armies try to rise up together and resist, the battle's hardly worth mentioning. It seems useless. And isn't that the way of the world? Where the strong take and take and crush everything that seems to rise up against them? What I find compelling about this is that the world of the Bible that we see here is not some fantasy land that's radically different from the world we experience. Instead, it's very much the same world. We recognize these dynamics of violence and of power and of danger. I mean, look at the business landscape of capitalism. Look at the world stage in Ukraine right now. Heck, think of college football that rolls out every year with super dominant teams like Alabama and Georgia that just destroy all challengers. Sorry if, uh, for all of our Auburn fans out there. So if anything, this passage is a reminder of God's truth because it presents the world with honesty. I kind of joke that there are a bunch of names in this passage. Did you ever wonder why Moses chose to give all these names of particular kings in particular places? Well, it's because he wanted his readers to know that these are real kings. These are real lands. This was a real conflict. So let me ask you this. Do you have anything that feels like an unbeatable foe in your own life? Places in where the powers and circumstances of this world seem allied against you? 
and you can't imagine how you could overcome them? I think the first thing we need to see and admit as God's people is that there are indeed forces in this world that are unbeatable in our own strength. Denying that reality won't make it go away. It won't make it any better. For many of us, our experience is very similar to that of Sodom and Gomorrah where they had lived for 12 years under the oppression of the warlords. They thought they had a plan. They thought they had amassed the resources they needed in the right way. They had five against four. We have the numbers. We have the right timing. We can attack when they're tired from fighting so many battles. And yet Sodom and Gomorrah were crushed. And even the ground itself seemed to fight back against them. Our own strength, our own ingenuity is very often not enough for the challenges, the dangers, and the powers that this world will bring against us. For some of us, it could be family dysfunction. It uh, it could be a financial crisis. It could be an addiction. And I find that particularly uh, instructive. Maybe you're familiar with the 12-step programs. Do you know what the first step of recovery in a 12-step program is? To admit your powerlessness to admit that you can't overcome this thing in your own power, to admit that circumstances are unmanageable and unacceptable. So let me put it this way. If there's no challenge that you can think of, then I'm not really sure how to say this, but I'm not sure why you're here. If everything in your life is manageable, under control, then I'm not sure why you need to come to church. Because why do you need a savior if there's nothing you need saving from? Why would you need Christ to be your hope if there's nothing that would cause you despair? The first thing we need to see this morning is that in this world there are dangers that feel unsurmountable, unbeatable in our own strength. That is Act 1. Act 2. In verse 12, we see why Moses has been telling us this story. There's probably been wars before this. We just don't hear about them in Scripture. But Moses chooses to tell us about this one in particular because in the midst of these unbeatable powers, God's people are called to a response of courage and of loyalty. You see, along with the spoils from the camps of Sodom and Gomorrah, the warlords also, in verse 12, we find out that they took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and then they went on their way. Now we have a crisis, ladies and gentlemen. Verse 13 says this, that when one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshel, and and of Anar. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So what we see in this part of the passage is that Abram hears that his nephew is in danger, and he begins his pursuit of rescue of his nephew couple of things that I think are important to notice in this pa- part of this passage. It's told us that Lot is now described as living in Sodom. No longer is he just pitching his tents near the city, as we saw earlier in chapter 13. 
But now he has moved in. He is dwelling in Sodom. The warlords, it seems, see no difference between Lot and the other inhabitants of Sodom. And so they take him along with his possessions, along with the rest of Sodom. Yet Abram himself had moved in and made a place for himself in his new lands, this time by the Oaks of Mamre. Yet here, Abram is identified as the Hebrew. It kind of reminds me of if you live in certain areas of the South and yet you're from the North, you will always be referred to as the Yankee. So the contrast here is interesting. Lot was living in and with the wicked people of Sodom. Meanwhile, Abram had been living as a man apart, even as he lived by the Oaks of, Oaks of Mamre. We see that he had an allegiance with Mamre and his brothers, yet there's also a, a real note of distinction between himself and his allies. Abram had continued to live where God had told him. Abram was living near the altar that he had built. Lot, on the other hand, had continued to move closer in towards the wicked people of Sodom, making peace with their sinful lifestyles until he was taken captive along with them. I hope you notice the principle that's at work here, that we as God's people are also called to be in the world, but not of it. But there's something else I want to focus on as well here. What's interesting is Abram's response when he hears of Lot's capture. The escapee tells Abram that Lot has been kidnapped. And what do you think Abram would do? Truth be told, I don't know if my first response would be to mount up and go on the rescue. I think my first response would probably be something more like, that fool, Lot. He got what was coming to him. That's what you get for living too close to wickedness. You get taken away with them. So I'm safe and secure because I was wise to live apart from the evils of this world. If Lot had been spiritual and faithful like me, he would be safe too. Isn't that our response all too often? When we hear about how a brother or sister falls into sin, our response is often, well, they should have known better. And sometimes it's not even sin. Sometimes it's just troubles of the world that they can fall into. You know, gosh, they should learn how to budget better. Then they wouldn't have this kind of financial bind. You know, if they had focused on communicating honestly and effectively, they wouldn't be in this relational hardship. If they would just look at the bright side, it's way too easy to be self-righteous, isn't it? See, Abram could have had that response, but he didn't. His response instead was one of courage, of loyalty and compassion. He saw the distress of his nephew and he rushed to help. All that mattered was that the family was in trouble. There didn't seem to be a second thought in Abram's mind with the story is presented. Rather, he hears the trouble and immediately there's a response of rescue. Isn't that like the compassion of our Savior? Jesus Christ who looked upon us and our sin and our distress. Because each of us is too much like Lot. We have all camped too close to Sodom and wickedness in some area of our lives. We become comfortable with sin, making our home among its immorality. And then suddenly, we find ourselves captive to it. 
what had been our home becomes our prison. An unbeatable force takes power over us and there's nothing we can do to free ourselves. Yet how does Christ respond? He does not chastise us, telling us how we should have done better. Instead, he sees our distress. He hears our cries. He is moved with compassion and care. With a mighty and jealous love, he acts for our rescue and our restoration. And it's that kind of compassion, that kind of response that Paul commends to the church in Galatians 6. You might remember this passage. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if any of you is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And so the compassion of Christ should be our model. And the reality of our own rescue from sin should make us humble, knowing that we too are easily captivated. If you remember how Galatians 6.1 ends, Paul says to keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You see, we're no better than those who are trapped in sin. We're simply those who have been freed by our Savior. And so we long for others to experience that same freedom and hope that comes through the power of his gospel. In the face of these unbeatable foes, God's people are called to courageous loyalty. Now there's something else here. Remember, these warlords were unbeatable. They had defeated every force that has risen up against them. Even a coalition of five kings who knew the inner workings of the warlord's strategies. Even they fell apart in battle. So, what in the world is giving Abram the kind of boldness to mount up this kind of a rescue mission? Doesn't he know that this is suicide? Well, Abram knew something that the warlord kings and the rebel alliance did not know. He knew a power that was greater than the rulers of this world. He knew about the king of kings that had worked mighty deeds to rescue those who have been called according to his purposes. Because if you'll remember, just a few chapters earlier, just a few weeks ago, we talked about Abram and Sarai's captivity in Egypt how their own sin and mistakes had brought them to a place of captivity where they were trapped by deadly rulers. And yet with a simple action, an almost understated way that Moses tells it, the Lord God Almighty afflicted Pharaoh with plagues and the mighty Egyptians had no choice but to let Abram and Sarai go. This gave Abram the kind of confidence to go forward trusting what God had done before to deliver his people, he could do again. And so that brings us now to Act 3, a divine victory. Look again at verse 14. Abram led forth his trained men, those born in his house, 318 of them, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them, and pursued them to Horath, north of Damascus. So as we see in so many other points in this book, Moses is actually very short in his description here. Abram and his small band of just over 300 men, 
they chase after the warlords that had captured Lot. And apparently, Abram manages to catch them unawares. He divides his men and he attacks at night. Taking advantage of the element of surprise, Abram's men are able to defeat the captors. But did you notice this? He doesn't just defeat them. He actually puts them on the run. It wasn't just some stealth mission where they get in free lot and get out before anyone notices. No, they, they per- defeated and pursued their foes to Damascus. The unbeatable warlords had been forced to flee. So if this is all we knew, we could be tempted to say that this was just an example of great leadership on the part of Abram. The right men with the right plan can do amazing things. And you know, there is some truth to that. Abram certainly was wise to attack by night with a small yet capable force. A head-on battle likely would have had the same outcome as that earlier battle in Siddim. There's a lot to be said for creativity and courage in this passage. But the key to Abram's success The key was not in his bravery or his intelligence or his alliance with the brothers. The key to his success was in the good favor of the Lord God. And that's not reading between the lines here and spiritualizing. We're actually told this explicitly just later on in this chapter in verses 19 and 20. We'll talk a lot more about this passage in King Melchizedek next week. But what the king says to Abram is very relevant this morning for our study. Melchizedek comes to Abram after the battle and says this. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Notice, he doesn't say, Abram, you're a mighty warrior. You are a great leader. You're a brilliant strategist. No, not to us, but to God be glory for great things he has done. It was the Lord who delivered the victory to Abram and freedom to Lot. Over all the kings of this world, all their powers and seemingly unbeatable strength, there is a God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is mighty in battle. He is the one who raises up rulers, and in a moment, he can bring them down. He is the mighty creator and sustainer, the sovereign over all things. Our God is in the heavens, the psalmist declares. He does all that he pleases. And it's that God that is ever faithful to his children. In all of our distress, he is aware, he is at work for his glory and for our good. He is teaching and refining and making us into a people of faith and courage for the purposes that he has prepared ahead of time. So the relevance of this story would have been ringing in the ears of Moses' original readers. They themselves had seen God's mighty power deliver them from the Egyptians, just like he had delivered Abram. And now they too were facing seemingly unbeatable enemies and armies in front of them. They were facing seas even that were standing between them and the promised land. And so Moses was reminding them of this story of Abram, that they too would have faith like their forefather they too could remember that their former deliverance, their trust in in the power of God 
and that they too would see God move in mighty ways for his people again. And brothers and sisters, haven't we too seen the mighty power of God, the God who rescues his people from the captivity of sin? And haven't we seen that he too is now is empowering us by faith to see him work in mighty ways? So I asked you before, what seems intimidating to you? What feels unbeatable? What challenge feels too big? Let me suggest a couple that I can think of. Uh, Jim mentioned earlier about how we're praying for a place where we will meet for worship. Because this space right here, it's getting more expensive. Lease options are not looking great right now. When we're still working at that. And we have a plot of land, and I don't know if you've paid attention at all, but construction costs and loan stipulations right now are kind of crazy. But know this, we've already seen how God can sustain our church through trials of leadership crisis, through years of negative budgets, and God has done amazing work of renewal in us before, and he will provide for us again as we follow him in diligent and courageous faith. So that's something for us as a collective of the church. But what else feels insurmountable for us? You know, we, we talked about our graduating high school students earlier. Maybe something that feels insurmountable is the cultural forces we're facing, trying to raise children who will trust and honor God with clear minds and pure hearts in the midst of a world that celebrates wickedness and sin. It certainly feels like every coalition that tries to stand up against the tide is either obliterated or becomes an ugly version of self-righteous fear-mongering. Yet we have seen how God could raise up a generation faithful to him in the captivity of Babylon through faithful ones like Daniel and his friends. And we can trust that God will give us wisdom and provision so that we too can be faithful to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord as we follow him in obedience and faith. Let me point out another one that sticks out to me in this passage. I find it interesting that Abram, in this passage, is going to free someone else. Here's how that circles back. I think that a re very real, insurmountable, unbeatable, intimidating foe that many of us stare down is the challenge of sharing our faith with others. That feel intimidating to anyone else? I know it does to me. It feels like a battle. Often it feels like you're walking into a no-win situation. And yet Abram had seen the mighty power of God to deliver in the past, and he was determined to see that same freedom for his nephew. And so with, faith, with bravery and faith, I, Abram went into the conflict. Abram used ingenuity, creativity, as he approached this encounter. In the similar way, is the Lord working up in you compassion? Is he working up loyalty for, the, for friends and for family members in your life that are captive to their sins and to the association of wickedness with this world? Do you not see how they are just as powerless as Lot to be freed in their own strength? Do you know that the Lord can work through you to see them liberated? 
And yes, it will look like finding thoughtful, well-timed ways to offer the truth to them, but it's ultimately the Lord who brings salvation. And it is he who has ordained that it will happen through his people, being a bold instrument of consistent, faith-filled courage to share the truth, even when it seems insurmountable. Because we serve a God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And there is nothing, no power of sin or idolatrous philosophy that can ultimately stand against him. Our prayer this morning is that we would see God move, that we would see him work to bring others out of death and into new life in his name, and that we, brothers and sisters, would have the privilege of seeing him do it through us. Because this story is ultimately about God. It's about his power, his majesty, his dominion over all earthly powers. And so let the rulers of this earth tremble at the glory of his dominion. Hear this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like the potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are you, all who take refuge in Him. Would you pray with me? Lord, Indeed, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Though the powers of this world seem insurmountable for our strength, we know that they are but a breath compared with your majesty. And Lord, we long for the day when your kingdom reign as Prince of Peace will be seen in all places, at all times,